how different from a regular uh, God-fearing Jew they are, how much kind of a higher, deeper level of spirituality that they're broadcasting to people around them. Jesus says they love the place of honor and banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They love all the social currency that their religious position accrues them. They love it. They love it. They love walking into a room and having everyone be, oh, someone really important is here. Jesus says to his disciples and to all the whole crowds, he says, listen, you're not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And don't call anyone on earth father because you have one father and he's in heaven. And don't let anyone call you a teacher, like a, a capital T, like this, the teacher, the guru, because you have one teacher, the Messiah. And then you can almost see him pausing and leaning in for this dramatic pause. And he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves under God will be exalted. And that theme gets picked up in Ephesians 6, where Paul is addressing masters and slaves, right? And that comports fairly well to today employers and employees, those with authority over others on a contractual basis. And he's addressing Christians in verse 9, who because they are an empl- uh, they have people in their uh, employ, they have tremendous power over the livelihood of other people. Ancient masters were like modern-day employers who had enormous sway over how you could treat the employees or the servants under their care. And knowing that context and knowing what Paul, the Spirit through Paul is trying to teach Christians through this verse shows us a lot about how those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, who are in Christ but also in charge over other people ought to conduct themselves. A few weeks ago, I focused on the responsibilities that employees have to employers, but this week it's about the responsibilities that employers have towards employees. But the application's broader. The application is, if you are in charge as a Christian over someone else, maybe you're a camp counselor, maybe you're a coach, maybe it's in, you're a teacher in a, sc- in a school context or an administrator, if you have a f- formal authority over someone else, Everything that we're going to be talking about this morning relates to you. I'll just keep using the uh, dynamic uh, equivalency of employer-employee just for the sake of clarity. Employers specifically must reckon with the issues of power more earnestly than employees because employers have the ability to withdraw someone's livelihood from them. And that doesn't mean that accountability or discipline or even dismissal from a job or from a role isn't on the table. It's never an option. I I think it can be for sure. But it does mean Christians with formal institutional power and authority need to be very careful about how they use that power. James 3.1 says, not many of you should become teachers, meaning people who teach the Bible, my fellow believers, because we, you know that those who teach will be judged more strictly by, by God, the inference is. And I would say, 
one of the applications of that verse in this context would be not many of you should aspire to become Christian leaders, to be in positions of authority, because you will be judged more strictly, both by God and by other people. Because while people don't expect perfection from Christian leaders, once you say, I'm a Christian, I love God, uh, uh, loving God and loving people is really important to me, and you're given a position of power, again, people are going to amplify and make... Uh, how you steward that position, people are going to take that more seriously as opposed to just a generic Christian. And I've talked to many, many people who worked in Christian businesses that really, it left a bad taste in their mouth because they felt like, well, this was a Christian business in name only. The way they conducted themselves in the Monday through Saturday of life was not something that I think lines up really well to anything that I understand Christianity to point to. There are too many stories of Christians who use their power and authority to harm or mistreat other people or to cause division for their own personal gain. And Paul is just going right to the root of it in Ephesians, 5, or Ephesians 6. So I'm going to read verses 5 to 9. The first few verses deal specifically with slaves to masters, employees to employers, but then watch what Paul does because he only spends one verse um, on employers, those in authority. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor on you, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, do the will of God from your heart. And that means serving wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So right out of the gate, he goes on this big tangent and says, employees, you should be serving in your work context as if you were working for Jesus and pursuing excellence and integrity and discipline and passion. And that should be your heart to glorify God at work. And then he says... Masters, same thing. You should do the same thing, right? He just says, treat your slaves in the same way, with that same heart, with that same vision, that vision in verse 7, to serve wholeheartedly in your role as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know the Lord will reward you in that role for whatever good you do, whether you are a slave or free. And again, we talked about as a Christian employee or under authority, you should have the view that everything that I do can be done as an act of worship to Jesus. I'm working to honor Jesus, so I pursue excellence, integrity, discipline, and I do things with as much positive passion and enthusiasm as I can. I don't just go through the motions. I bring positivity to my workspace as a way to honor God and bless other people. And Paul, and Paul says all those same things apply to employers. You do your job with excellence, with integrity, with discipline, be positive, be passionate, be enthusiastic. Create a great workplace culture as much as it depends on you to the people under your care. But then he highlights two subpoints that are specifically for Christians in authority over other people. The first is he says, don't threaten your slaves. Don't threaten your employees. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Right? This is like the old school, like, don't threaten because God is watching. 
and God, God's heart roils against mistreatment and abuse uh, of the vulnerable, and in this case, the economically vulnerable. Christ-like leaders, regardless of their context, should abandon any attempt to manipulate, demean, mistreat, obviously abuse, bully, scare, or intimidate people under their charge. And this was something, this was a call that was foreign to an ancient context. Abuse was widely accepted. Extreme abuse, maybe not so much in certain contexts of the Roman Empire in the first century, but it was pretty much presumed that one of the rights that masters had over slaves, even when it was contractual, was that you had the ability to abuse your slave, to keep them in line. And that could mean anything from violent beatings, sexual harassment of female slaves, or threats to male slaves, because often when a male became a slave, their entire household came under the employment of the master. And so the threat that was often made to male slaves is the male slave of that family, the father of that family, would be sold to a different master. So you'd break up the family. There's a threat there. You know, Jeff, uh, I think I've used the example of the Strongs coming under the employment of the Clanks, but then saying, hey, Jeff, if you don't do a good job, we'll send you to like Prince Edward Island. Your family will stay here, but you better pick up the pace, otherwise you're gonna be separated from your family maybe forever. So that kind of, those kind of threats, physical, psychological, relational, emotional, were fairly commonplace. Again, not in every relationship, but common enough that Paul has to say, if you are a Christian who's in Christ and you're in charge, threats are off the table, abuse is off the table, mistreatment off the table, demeaning, Bullying, off the table. The vision is that employers, Christians in authority, should make it very easy, as easy as possible, for their employees to work with enthusiasm and goodwill. So threats of punishment, harsh language, uh, harsh behavior. Yeah, it might work in the short term, term to ensure obedience, but really all you're getting is compliance. You're not getting wholehearted service, which Paul calls Christian employees to serve wholeheartedly, not begrudgingly, right? Paul says Christians in authority are to never exact compliance and never secure compliance through threats or intimidation, ever. That's not the way of Jesus. No go. And in fact, not only does he say, don't threaten them, in Colossians 4.1, he says, masters, employers, provide for your employees what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. So this is the application of love your neighbors yourself. If you were employed in this context, how would you want to be treated? So don't just not threaten them. Don't just not beat them. Provide for them what is right and fair. Bless them. Do good to them. Those who are in Christ and in charge should seek to do all they can to lead in a way that reinforces the fundamental dignity and value of every single person under their authority. And they'll work to create a, a culture that fosters wholehearted effort and not just begrudging compliance. Notice the second thing that Paul highlights. He says, because... He's giving this instructions to masters, and he says, because there's no favoritism with God. Now, why does he say this? Well, in our culture, like theirs, 
generally speaking, the higher on the social status ladder you climb, the more breaks you kind of get. The more people are willing to kind of turn a blind eye to some of your indiscretions because you're so important or you do such good work or you add such value to the organization. Yeah, they're not perfect, but yeah, they, they lose it on the employees sometimes. But, you know, what are you going to do? The good outweighs the bad. In ancient cultures, like our own, the higher up in the social status people feel they are or know they are, the more likely they will be to expect to be accorded special considerations. And what Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to understand, that it's applicable to everybody here who has power over other people, is that your title or your social status gives you no privilege or advantage in the kingdom of God over other people. God does not give you a wider berth of how you live your life because you have a title or social status. There's not one set of rules for lower class Christians and a completely different, much more flexible set of commands that God demands of Christians in authority and power. There, there isn't a first and second, there's no case system within Christianity. Paul says in Galatians uh, 3, 28, that in Christ there is no longer slave or free, meaning that before God, God loves the slave man and the free uh, equally. And God accrues to both of them equally salvation in Christ. And God demands both of them obedience in Christ and love towards each other. Both the CEO and the janitor in the kingdom of God are sinners redeemed by God's grace, loved by God, equally valued, but equally important. And Paul wants the Christians to understand that if you hold a position of power, either within the local church or within the community, that will not cause God to treat you in a special way or in a preferential way. Does God grant me special favor because I'm a pastor? No. Does the fact that I hold the title of pastor accrue special spiritual privileges? No. Do I gain access to God that you guys don't get because of that title? No. Does God deal less seriously with my sin because I'm a pastor? Because I've dedicated my life to God. So maybe God throws me a few, few bones, a few breaks now and again. No. In fact, we hear the opposite message in the New Testament. Not many of you should be teachers. Because if you put yourself in that situation, you will be judged more harshly. You have a greater responsibility before God. To whom much is given, much is expected. God will evaluate and judge and bless both the boss, the master, and the employee, the slave, according to what they have done and respect and with respect to their general faithfulness in carrying out their role. And so Paul says, don't think, just because the world around you says, you're a master, like you're, you're in this position, you can treat your slaves whatever way you want, whatever way you want, whatever works for you, you do you as a master. Paul says, no, that's not the way God looks at the situation. You need to be very careful that you are leading and using your authority in a way that is honoring to God 
and is as best as you know how seeking to serve God and bless other people. Because God isn't impartial. He will judge you just as strictly as an employer um, not fulfilling your role as he will an employee who's not fulfilling their role as a Christian. So let me just tie this into some practical takeaways in terms of what does this look like. If you're in Christ and you're in charge, how do you glorify God in that role? This is a deep well. There's lots of amazing resources, especially on theologyofwork.org that will allow you to do a deep dive. But here's some real basic principles that I think almost everybody in this room can grab a hold of and apply. First of all, the vision is servant leadership. The aspiration that we should be clamoring towards as Christians with power is, I want to lead like Jesus. I want to be a leader. I'm not scared of holding positions of power or authority, but I want to use that authority to bless God and to bless other people. Again, Jesus' challenge that the greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus never said, don't try and be great. He just said, you have to understand the script of how to be great looks different in God's eyes than it does in the eyes of the world. By all means, be aspirational. Seek to be the greatest. But understand that the greatest in my kingdom will be the one who's quick to serve. Who isn't trying to clamor and get under the lights and to be seen by other people as mighty and great and amazing. They're more than content to work behind the scenes. They're generous. They're sacrificial. That's greatness in my kingdom. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That's a good definition of servant leadership. You're not doing anything out of vain conceit and selfish ambition. You have ambition, but it's not just localized on how, does, how do I get everything in this role to be about how to make my life better. You're, saying, you're considering the interests of other people. How do my employees feel about that? How do my stakeholders feel about that? How does the community feel about this? And how do I lead so that I bless the maximum amount of people? And I think Christ-like leadership will have two components. The first is to love and bless those under you. And again, that's a very vague. And I know, I know that um, it's hard to say, well, what does it look like when you're the boss of someone? What does it mean to love and bless them? Westminster Larger Catechism, for over 400 years, Christians have given an answer to that question. How many of you are familiar with the Westminster Longer Catechism? Anybody? Catechism is a talkback. It's 198 questions that were used to give people kind of like the too-long-didn't-read version of what it means to be a Christian. So as you're gearing up and learning to read the Bible, it highlighted 198 questions that had to do with life and faith. And two of the questions had to do with the relationship between superiors and inferiors. That's a language they used. That is not the language we would use today because they're not inferring superior Christians to inferior Christians or superior people to inferior. It just meant in terms of a hierarchy. If you are in a position of authority over someone else, you're someone superior. Some workplaces still use that term, but not too many. And then if you're an inferior, and two of the questions are centered around what is required for those who are in positions of authority. Listen to the wisdom that cuts through this answer. We'll put it up on the board. What is required of superiors towards their inferiors? What is required of Christian bosses to those, in their, uh, to those who are employed under them? 
It is required of superiors according to that power they receive from God. So right away, you're only in that position because God put you there and God can take you out of it. So walk humbly, walk fearfully. And that relation wherein they stand, number one, to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors. That's the blanket. You should just be doing that. If you're a counselor at KCBC this summer, if you're a teacher over students, if you're a Sunday school teacher over children, if you are uh, an uh, employer over employees, if you're a manager over staff, love, pray for, bless those under your care. Instruct, counsel, and admonish them. Train them, set them up for success. Show them how to do their jobs the best they can. Countenancing, commending, and rewarding those who do well. Encourage and reward those who fulfill their uh, duties and do it well. And reproving, discountenancing, and chastising those who do ill, meaning if someone isn't just not doing their job but is actually being a toxic, poisonous, abusive presence in the workplace, confront it. Don't just be a nice boss who just turns a blind eye to mistreatment. You reprove, you chastise, you confront it, and if need be, you fire that person to protect other people in that workplace from having to deal with that kind of poisonous toxicity. Protect, provide for them in all things necessary for body and soul. So don't just think about your workers as needing pay or benefits, but how do you provide for them an environment that nourishes them, we would, I might say, heart, soul, mind, and strength, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And lastly, by grave, wise, holy, exemplary carriage, to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and preserve the authority which God has put upon them. That's old school language. But you know what that says? With grave, and by grave, wise, holy example, you conduct yourself in such a way that the authority that has been given to you as a teacher, as a boss, as a manager, as a leader, is sustained and preserved. You lead, you carry that title, you conduct yourself in a way that that title of pastor, of teacher, is held in high regard. It's, it's a throwback to the commandment, do not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. You be a model example on every level that your employees look up to. I mean, that's a high and holy charge, but that, that's what Christians within the Reformed tradition for 400 years have been drilling into um, those moving through catechesis. In the Reformed tradition that uh, I got exposed to at Redeemer, that means students would memorize the question and answer to all 198 questions, usually by the time they were 14, and the corresponding Bible verses that connect them to Scripture. I'm not saying we have to do that, but if you're a Christian employer and have authority over other people, you would do worse than printing that up and putting it on your fridge or on your cabin or in, in your own office at your workplace and saying, that is your duty to those underneath you. Love, bless, and serve them. And then it goes on to say, hey, what about the specific sins? What are the things that we need to be careful of? Because the second part of what it means to be a Christ-like leader is to ruthlessly identify and root out sins that are common to those who hold power. There are certain sins that when they get mag when positions of authority and power magnify them, they can do incalculable damage. And Christians have seen that for a long time. So the next question in the catechesis is, what are the sins of superiors? What are those things that those in authority need to be very, very aware of and careful of and willing to confront in their own life? Whether you're a pastor, again, teacher, it doesn't matter what your role is. The sins of superiors are 
besides the neglect of duties required of them. So just besides just not even just doing your job well. That, that's just brutal. That's a sin to not do your job well as a manager or a leader. So besides that, an inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, their own ease, their own profit, their own pleasure, it's a sin to see your position as one which is designed to make your life better. That's a sin. Commanding things which are unlawful. Telling your employees to do things that are actually against the law. Cutting corners, don't worry about it. Uh, it it's, it's fine, it's been done before. Or commanding things of your employees that are not in the power of them to perform. So you actually know someone can't do a job, but you give them a job without sufficient training, knowing that they're going to fail, but you give them anyway so that you can either fire them or put them up in a situation where they're going to be embarrassed or demeaned publicly because they can't actually fulfill the role. That's a sin. That's not good leadership. It's anti-Christian. Counseling, encouraging, or favoring them into that which is evil, obviously, but doing something in your job and encouraging them that will maybe help you, help the company, maybe even help them, not, not, not only not lawful, but, but evil and illegal, no place for Christian leaders. Dissuading, discouraging, or discountenancing them in that which is good. So instead of um, rewarding and pushing them towards excellence and the highest level of integrity and business ethics, being like, whoa, slow down. Like, oh, if, if we all worked that hard here and kind of abided by all these rules, that would make life difficult on us. So why don't we just kind of like, just ease up on the whole, like, honoring God through your work thing. Like, that's just, yeah, save that for, like, church work or something. We, we kind of do things differently around here. That is sinful if you're in a position of authority. Correcting them unduly. So just constantly correcting them and fault-finding. And instead of saying, hey, my employee isn't doing very well, how can I help them? Saying, oh, do you know you're not doing this well? You screwed this up again? Like, seriously, isn't this like the fourth conversation we've had about this? Carelessly exposing or leaving them to wrong temptation or danger, not providing adequate safety training and safety precautions on a job site, things like that. Christians for 400 years say that is sinful. No, no place at all for Christians in authority to do that. Provoking them to wrath, just needling them through words or actions that are just constantly demeaning in such a, to, to such a degree that as an employee, you're just like, ripping your hair out, and you're like, man, I would leave this job as I could, but if I could, but I can't because I'm so economically dependent on it. But, like, I'm just going crazy. It's such a high-stress environment and situation. Or in any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by acting in a way that is unjust, indiscreet, not rigorous, or remiss of basic duties. Now, again, that, I think that'd be awesome. If every Christian who has a position of authority over someone else in this church printed those two question and answers up and read them every day. Just do that for a month, just to get it in your bones and in your imagination. Say, God, I want to lead with the highest level uh, of the gifts and skills that you've given me to honor you. And that's going to be my benchmark. Not what other Christians around me are doing. Not what passes for good enough culture where I work. That's what I'm going to aspire to. That would be awesome. So in closing, let's remember that Jesus is our model for how we use power, how we use authority, which is to serve and bless other people. Yes, we have a job to do as those 
with positions of power, but a big part of our job is to bless and help other people under our charge succeed as well. And while that applies to all Christians, Christian employers must reckon with the issue of power much more earnestly because you are in charge of the livelihood of other people. And that doesn't mean accountability and discipline and even dismissal are never an option, but it does mean, again, Christians with formal institutional power have to be very careful how they use that power. Those who find themselves in Christ and in charge ought to be serious about doing things the right way and doing the right things with a view to honor God and bless those over which they have authority. Let's pray. Jesus, please, please teach us how to see power and authority as you do and how to wield power and authority as you do. Please forgive us for the ways and the times and the temptations that we've yielded to where we've used positions of power and privilege to advance our own agenda instead of seeking to honor you in all things in it. May we be gripped by your Holy Spirit with a renewed passion and aspiration to be great Christian leaders and great as Christian employers. But we ground that greatness and that aspiration in your call to become servants who love and bless and serve those under our care. In Jesus' name, amen.